and we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. It's all baseball on today's morning show, and here's part one. I'm excited to be reconnecting with best-selling author Kostya Kennedy, who uh, was my guest for the morning show to talk about a very important book of his called Lasting Impact, One Team, One Season, and uh, What Happens When Our Sons Play Football, a very interesting book about uh, the risks of football, and uh, but also the the strong hold that it has over over a large swath of the American public, including uh, plenty of young people who want to play this game despite its risks. And uh, I'm reconnecting now with uh, Kostya Kennedy to talk about his latest book, which is actually published by Sports Illustrated, titled "The Story of Baseball uh, in 100 Photographs." It is a marvelous book that celebrates the sport of baseball in very striking fashion by presenting uh, an array of of 100 different photographs, many of which capture some of the most important superstars of the game and or critical moments in baseball history. And some of these photographs, on the other hand, capture moments that are in a sense much more ordinary and everyday but help illuminate the public's love of baseball and the special uh, special hold that this sport has on on so much of the public it's beautifully done and i'm excited to be able to uh, speak with Kostya Kennedy about this collection from Sports Illustrated again the story of baseball in 100 photographs Kostya Kennedy we welcome you back to the morning show Thanks so much, Greg. It's great to be on with you. I'm really impressed with this book. Um, you wrote the foreword to it. Is that your primary involvement in this book, or did you have any hand in the selection of these actual 100 photographs? Uh, no, actually, I did. I did write the foreword, as you, as you mentioned. I was the editor of the book uh, throughout. So I, I, of course, with a team, with a photo editor and a designer and a couple of other people. Um, but we we selected the photos and uh, and tried to to weave together a bit of a, a narrative um, photograph by photograph of this wonderful game. Right. Uh, you've made great selections, and we'll talk about some of the specific choices uh, in just a moment. I wonder if you could uh, uh, maybe expand on a really great quote that you include from uh, someone who was, a, uh, I believe, a former colleague of yours at Sports Illustrated for about a quarter of a century, uh, Ronald Modra, uh, who says... When you're shooting baseball, you're waiting. You're waiting and you're attentive. <laughs> Explain how, uh, especially once upon a time, being a photographer for the game of baseball was, in such large measure, a waiting game. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful quote, and I included that in, in the forward of the book because it sums up a lot of the challenge. Ron's a wonderful photographer. I was able, as, as a senior writer at Sports Illustrated for a long time, and we'd be on stories together. Uh, you know, in baseball, perhaps more than any other mainstream sport, you don't know really where the action's going to be, particularly in the field, right? Uh, you, I mean, you can you know you can get a pitcher in his windup, you know you can get a batter in his stance, but if you're looking for a great fielding play in particular or a play at the base, uh, at a base, it's it's often difficult to know. There's no way to know where it's going to happen, so you have to get a little lucky. And baseball, as we know, you know what what Ron says about taking photographs is also a little bit of what we do as as consumers and viewers and those of us who love the game. 
there are moments of in, intense action that are very quick, and then you're sort of waiting to see what develops in between. So as, as he mentioned, he when he was shooting the Yankees, for example, in, in the late 70s and early 80s, when the Yankees were in the field, he would often just train his uh, camera on Greg Nettles, who played third base and was a wonderfully acrobatic uh, and, and elegant fielder at third base, and he felt he had a good chance of, of getting a good picture if the ball was hit to him. Now, of course, the balls only hit him a few times a game, so it, it's a risk-reward situation, but he felt, and other photographers who I spoke to felt, that when you're shooting baseball, if you, if you spend a day there uh, and you get one or two really good or even great photographs of the kind that, that sort of elevate outside the game, it's been a great, great day, uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's what you can hope for. Right. I really appreciate some of what you explain in the introduction to the book about how these 100 photographs were selected and how this is, for one thing, by no means the 100 most famous baseball photographs. In a sense, although that would be a, that'd be a, a great book, but I don't think that would be nearly as interesting a book as, as this book is, which certainly does have its share of famous photographs uh, from, from baseball. But that's not all this is. This book is more than that. Uh, explain a little further what went into your thinking process, you and those who helped you select these 100 photographs. Yeah, it was, it was really it was a, it was a big challenge, right? And you start off with the, the challenge of getting a hundred photographs, and you could take it in, in any number of directions, of course, as you're suggesting in your question. So baseball's about to turn 150. At the first openly professional baseball team with the Red Stockings in 1869, and we were using this opportunity and are using it to to try to tell a narrative of the game, truly to tell a story of baseball over time and over players and over context and over shifts in the game and, of course, over sometimes intersections with the American society at large. So we, we had sort of a high threshold of what would get in. Of course, the picture had to look pleasing. It had to be aesthetically beautiful or compelling in some way. I wanted pictures to be those that you could stay with a little bit, or you could come back to and maybe see something new or see something in a different light. So there, there was some depth to a photograph. And then also there was uh, content was crucial, meaning that it was, uh, wanted to tell a little bit of a story, have a, a person who was important to the game there or a game itself or a time or, you know, whether it's showing a bullpen cart uh, because of what an important part of the game that was for a little uh, period in the 70s uh, or, or whatever it might be. We, so we were trying to tell over the whole a narrative and have the pictures connect in some way to their time and to the overall story of the game. I should just mention briefly, with each picture, we have about, oh, 250 words of text or so. We hope evocative text, which give a little background and context, uh, a little bit extra to the photograph so people can really dig in and, and understand what, what's happening and what they're looking at. Right. And I also appreciate the fact that the book is separated uh, by time periods. So, for instance, the first section of the book is titled Beginnings, appropriately enough, and spans the years 1869 to 1919. And uh, there are some very, very fascinating pictures in this section that include uh, some early luminaries of the game, including Cy Young and Ty Cobb caught in action. I actually would love to have you say just a quick word about a, a photograph in this section, which is 
which you headline, Beginning of the World. This is a, a photograph taken um, uh, in Boston in the fall of 1903, and it is a remarkable image indeed. Yes, it's a picture of the, of the first World Series games uh, at a place called Huntington Avenue Grounds in Boston, uh, and it's a big widespread shot. There weren't that you, you mentioned the Ty Cobb picture from 1910, which was a beautiful um, action picture. There wasn't that much action in those days uh, as what people shot, but this was not action, but a big wide angle looking at the field. And what's so remarkable about it is you see all the the people who've come to watch the game, and they're just crowding in. They're on the outfield. They're uh, standing on the on the big slatted wooden fence. Uh, they're packed in to see this incredible, incredible spectacle, uh, and very close to the to the field, as as one can see, much closer than you would ever have people today. Uh, obviously, you wouldn't have people on the field at all today, but uh, it, it's an incredible photograph, I think, because it evokes such a time. It evokes the excitement of this new game. It's it's relatively new. It's 1903. This is the first World Series. Shows so many people there, so close to the game. Uh, you can see people aren't. You understand by looking at this picture that people don't hit the ball as far as they do now in those days because you wouldn't be able to have people so encroached. So there's a lot about it along with uh, period advertisement signs for a local shoe shop and things like that, which really make it a, a powerful picture to look at, I think. Absolutely. And I'm glad you made mention of the fact that we have very few true action shots from the early years of baseball, which makes the, the image, for instance, of Ty Cobb um, all the more precious. It's uh, Well, you describe it, the, this, this wonderful photograph that captures Ty Cobb uh, and, and his greatness. Yeah, so he's coming really hard into third base, basically almost barreling over to third base, and uh, you see the the his foot hitting the bag. It's such again, these pictures become so revealing. You can see that the bag is kind of a soft bag; it's almost a pillow. Uh, it's changed a lot over time, and there's dirt uh, flying everywhere. The umpire in the background is, is looking to make his call on the play. Uh, Cobb has a, a, an expression of great intensity on his face. And and it's an amazing picture because, it, of course, it's Ty Cobb, right? And we're seeing him in 1910 and at the height of his powers and what and what he was as the, as the greatest player in the game at that time. Uh, and and as, as we were saying, it's also uh, very rare in those days to see action like this. This really stood out. There are some beautiful pictures from that time, like the, like the World Series one we just described. But often the player pictures are, are portraits on the sideline of a of a pitcher going into his windup perhaps or a batter taking a little bit of a swing the action photography didn't really begin uh until the 20s 30s and, and then more so in the 40s and 50s it just it, it was much harder to get because of the quality of uh camera in those days and it was just not uh in vogue really to do it nearly as much as it would become Right. We're speaking with Kostya Kennedy, uh, the editor of a wonderful new book from Sports Illustrated called The Story of Baseball in 100 Photographs. I know people will uh, greedily devour the chapter uh, that covers 1920 to 1947, and you title it From Ruth to Robinson. Uh, in many ways, that, that title is all, all that we need to hear, although there are a whole lot of other luminaries from this period of, of, of the game who are captured here as well. I want to just ask you about the photograph that you chose of Babe Ruth. I mean, as you just said, by this point, photography had advanced to the, to, to the point where there are 
just uh, countless possibilities yeah. in terms of great photographs of the wonderful Babe Ruth in action. But I love the photo that you selected, although I've never seen it before. Explain what, what led you to choose it. Yeah, so as you say, a player like Ruth or DiMaggio or later on Pete Rose or any number of players, there, there are many choices you could make. One thing to remember is, so say something like Pete, uh, sorry, Babe Ruth called shot in the 1932 uh, World Series. There's not really a great picture of it, right? There's a little tiny grainy image, but there's not a picture that you would even consider including in a book of, of great photography or, or as something to really hold up at, at a good size. Uh, but but there are many many pictures of Ruth, of Ruth in many different ways. We chose the picture where he's finishing his mighty swing. You see him sort of in full power. His hips are swiveled. Uh, the back of his leg is extended. His, his front leg, uh, his right leg is bent, and his bat is high on the follow through. He just hit a home run. He's looking up at it. The both the catcher who's risen from his crouch and the umpire also following the flight path of the ball and you also see the shadows on the dirt there the shadows of both Ruth and the catcher behind him it's at Sportsman Park uh, in St. Louis where Babe and a lot of other people hit quite well against the Browns in those days Uh, and it just seemed you were really seeing Babe Ruth doing what he did obviously he did so many other things and he was a big larger than life star uh, outside the game and, and the way he was so jovial and the raconteur and all that uh, and also did so much on the field. He could run well, and he was obviously a great pitcher. He, he did so much well. But but the thing that he did, obviously, was hit home runs. And here you're seeing him, the power of Babe Ruth, on just you know on just a day in October in 1926. And uh, it's it's one of his home runs, and and it, it really seemed to encapsulate with this picture to tell really tell the, the larger story of of who. Uh, Babe Ruth was and, and what he did for the game. I love this photograph so much. This uh, this whole section is is peppered with superstars from uh, Do- Joe DiMaggio to Ted Williams to uh, the legendary Satchel Page. I really appreciate the thoughtful choice you made to capture the great Lou Gehrig. This is another photograph I've never seen before. I've seen ones like it. There are all kinds of photographs from this powerful, poignant moment when uh, Lou Gehrig uh, bade farewell to the game he loved so much. Uh, But describe to our listeners the photograph that is here and, again, why you thought this was the perfect photograph to include. So it's Lou at Yankee Stadium on July 4th, 1939, and he's on the field uh, with uh, several microphones set up on tripods in front of him, and he's delivering the speech that we've we've come to know and has made its way into the American uh, lexicon of, of the luckiest man speech, where he knows that he has ALS, and he's uh, still says he considers himself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Uh, it, it's a powerful picture for what you see in Lou with his head slightly bent. He's not actually speaking. He's in in, in pause at that moment. And also the men you see behind him looking at him and, and understanding the courage that they're seeing. Here the case, you know, Lou Gehrig was, was an all-time, obviously, great, great, great ball player. There are plenty of pictures of him hitting uh, or fielding or, or doing something that we could have shown. But uh, what Lou Gehrig did in the way he faced this disease and, and in his his bravery and, and composure, uh, really slipped the bounds of the game. And, and there aren't as many times as one would think that baseball does that. Of course, it's wrapped up into American society, but moments like Lou Gehrig or uh, Jackie Robinson, Roberto Clemente, aren't quite as many as, as, as one would think. And this really seemed to be one where 
he was making a mark not just on the baseball world but on the lar- world at large and felt like the right way to to honor him and and what he's what he's given us right uh one very special moment in baseball history was the perfect game thrown by Don Larson and uh please describe the great photograph that is here that captures this moment on October 8th 1956 yeah, one one of the things I love about it, so it's uh, he he's he's in the arms of of Yogi Berra, having just uh, Don Larson is having just finished his um his, his perfect game, and it, it shows you sort of what what a big guy Don Larson is because Yogi wasn't tall, but Yogi was a big big heavy catcher, and uh, it's it's Don who's picking up Yogi Berra, uh, so it gives you a sense. Uh, I think I think Larson was about six four, and uh, gives you a sense of his size and his strength. And you see people, uh, security people, and everybody spilling onto the field and coming close to them. Uh, the Yankees are beginning to celebrate. The Dodgers' first base coach is, is turning to to leave the field, um, and and again it captures a, a singular moment. Here was a case when. One of the landmark games, you know, one of the 10 or 15 games that will go down at, at the all-time games in, in baseball history, uh, there was a great picture of it, and it was a great moment. Uh, and, and Larson, whose career otherwise might not have merited a telling in, in the overall story of baseball, but certainly through this October day in 1956, warranted being in there. Absolutely. I want to make, mention that there are uh, several photographs that have a, a local connection to our listeners, for instance, a really interesting picture of the Braves having just moved from Milwaukee to Atlanta, uh, and that story is talked about. There's a great picture of the Kenosha Comets. They were one of the the women's teams active uh, during World War II and just after, uh, along with the Racine Bells, but the photograph actually shows uh, some talented women of the Kenosha Comets, and all kinds of wonderful photographs to take us up to the present day. I want to finish real quick by having you talk about a great photograph that is not on the field but in a restaurant. The headline says, The Art of the Craft, and the great Ted Williams is sitting down uh, to a meal with two much younger players. Uh, Explain why this image is here. It is wonderful, but why did you want to include it? You know, it's great that you bring this one up. I think of all these pictures and... and when you live with them and, and look at them, I, I really love so many of them, and it's hard to choose. But in some ways, this is my favorite photograph or the one that, that I think about sometimes when I'm away from the book uh, as much or more than any other. So it's Williams, as you said, and, and he's sitting at a lunch table in Florida during during spring training of 1986, and he's there with Don Mattingly and Wade Boggs. And this is at the height of the time when Boggs is, you know, multiple time batting champion and and Manningly is in the heart of his MVP caliber seasons and they're staring at Ted who's sort of in a half swing because he's talking hitting and he's showing the way he turns on a pitch Uh, and and you can see the way his hands are on top of one another Uh, it's just such an amazing picture about baseball going generation to generation one one beautiful detail of this is that Williams has a cloth napkin tucked over his the front of his shirt to preserve his shirt which is what men of his age uh, and at that time period did and the younger men aren't doing that, right? And it's just an, another detail which underscores the different generations, but they're together uh, around baseball and You're around right. this incredible thing. And you can kind of see the the reverence and respect that is on uh, the faces of these young players 
sitting in the presence of one of the towering legends of the game. It's, it's yes. uh, It really is a beautiful image. The whole book is wonderful. Again, it's titled The Story of Baseball in 100 Photographs. This is published by Sports Illustrated. And the editor, Kostya Kennedy, also responsible for a really nice uh, introduction for the book. Kostya Kennedy, you've done it again, and I thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about this wonderful book. Best wishes. Oh, and to you. Thanks so much for having me on. This was really great. I I appreciate the time, and and so glad you've been enjoying the book. You're listening to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD FM 91.1. I'm Gregory Berg. We carry the baseball theme into Part 2 with an interview recorded and initially broadcast back in 2004 with former major leaguer Jim Brosnan, responsible for two of the best baseball books ever written. As we explore the wonderful sport of baseball today, it is a real pleasure and honor to be speaking today on The Morning Show with Jim Brosnan, who uh, was a major league pitcher, but in some respects more significantly, a very important writer and responsible for two of the very, very best books about baseball ever written, uh, The Long Season and Pennant Race. And really, nobody had ever written books like this before. And they really helped pave the way for other books that have been written since. But I know many, many baseball fans who prefer these uh, originals uh, to anything which has come since. Uh, Pennant Race has recently been um, re-released by uh, Ivan R. D. Publishers based in Chicago. And uh, we're certainly honored that we have, for a few minutes on the phone, Jim Brosnan himself to talk about the experience of, of writing both The Long Season and Pennant Race. His career in Major League Baseball uh, included uh, stints uh, in Chicago, St. Louis, Cincinnati, and uh, and uh, is a, a, a fascinating uh, career in and of itself. Jim Brosnan, we welcome you to The Morning Show. It's an honor to be here. It is uh, not overstating it to say that before you came out with your first book, and I think right around 1960, uh, the, the thought of a Major League Baseball player or any sort of uh, professional athlete writing a book all by themselves was absolutely unthinkable. How did you think about doing the unthinkable, the unprecedented? I had read all the books that had been written by other people rather than the players themselves, usually about the players or about their, their clubs and that sort of thing, or about uh, baseball. And I didn't like them. So you were trying to fill a void. <laughs> fill a void in my own library. Right. Um, tell us <laughs> I little... spent more time in a, in, a, in a public library than I did playing baseball when I was a kid, and reading all sorts of things. And the baseball books did not satisfy me because I didn't think they they sounded right. And, of course, after I started playing, I found out they weren't right. Tell us a little more specifically the way in which these baseball books fell short in your estimation. Well, the, uh, they, don't, they don't say what exactly happens in the game, what the feelings of the, the players themselves are. Uh, even a good writer has a, a difficult, a good reporter has a difficult time Finding out uh, what players feel about their their particular game, their personal game, and also about what they think about other players and, and their games. Uh, I thought that uh, if I did it as a player, I could 
uh, overcome that problem. That, I mean, you you would uh, the reader would understand exactly what I felt, and I, and I was a player. Now that that, that uh, sounds egotistic, but uh, well, it is egotistic. But it's true. <laughs> but, but it is true. That's that that was that was the point. I, I wanted to get. Uh, uh, I felt that uh, a uh, especially a kid at my age would have been ten, twelve, thirteen, somewhere around there. Uh, he should know the truth about what the, what baseball was at that time. You touched on the fact that uh, as a young person, you spent a whole lot more time in the library than you did uh, out on the ball field playing baseball. I'd like to learn just a little bit more about that. In fact, were you uh, sort of half athlete, half scholar? Just what what just what were you like well, as a child? A, you know, it's a summer game, and, and uh, in Cincinnati, it. Uh, for a kid and not hold baseball, they didn't have little league down there. In not hold baseball, you've, uh, it was a very limited time that you were actually playing the game. Uh, the rest of the time, you had to be doing something else. And I didn't play basketball or, or football. I, I read. That's what <laughs> that's what I was encouraged to do. When did you start writing? I mean, I, I assume you did at least some writing before you undertook uh, your first book. I would think that the first time I ever wrote uh, something that w- was uh, appreciated by a, uh, uh, someone who I respected was the, an English professor at Elder High School in Cincinnati who liked what I, what I did on an essay. And I thought, well, that was easy. That was fun. <laughs> the uh, uh, Looking up the, the facts about uh, Thomas Paine and, and, and writing it out uh, the way I thought I thought that he would uh, would appreciate it. Do I remember correctly that you did some kind of writing at some point for Sports Illustrated magazine? Yes, I did. Uh, some kind of article, which I suppose in a sense might have helped pave the way for this idea that maybe you could write a book about baseball. I, I think that the uh, the articles, that there, there were two of them in uh, 1959, uh, and the book really came together. I mean, the, the guy, uh, Bob Boyle, who was a... A, uh, a young editor of Sports Illustrated, which had incidentally just about started about that time, I think in 1958. Uh, he was doing a story for uh, uh, for, uh, for Time magazine on P.K. Wrigley, the uh, owner of the Chicago Cubs, and he came into Chicago. And, and, and uh, being a baseball fan as he was, a Cub fan as a matter of fact, although he comes from the East, he, uh, he asked a question of... Uh, the guy I was working for, Arthur Meyerhoff, a, a, an advertising agency here in Chicago, if there were any players in in the town who knew P.K. Wrigley, and uh, Art didn't know whether there was anybody else, but I he knew I did. I was working for him, and uh, Art Meyerhoff was handling the uh, uh, doublement account for uh, for uh, P.K. Wrigley. He said, "Well, you go up to the tenth floor, and uh, you introduce yourself." And so I did, and P.K. Wrigley, uh, this uh, monument, this titan of industry, sat down, and we talked baseball for 10 minutes. Wow. And then he, he, he kind of ushered me out of that, <laughs> said, you, you go you go back down there and do what Art tells you to do now. <laughs> <laughs> so that encounter uh, allowed you to... Uh, to well, then that's how I met Bob Boyle. Exactly. And Boyle said, listen... Uh, have you ever written anything yourself? I, I had been introduced as someone who was learning how to write copy for uh, the, in the advertising business. And I said, well, when I was in the Army, I did do some writing. Uh, 
actually I wrote because I was going into the Army. I was putting things down. Uh, oh, Stephen Crane, is that the guy that read the, it wrote a very, uh, it was an important book in my, uh, in my, my youth, maybe in early teenage, the Red Badge of Courage. Mm. And uh, I thought, I mean, that's how he started out, uh, writing his book. Is it, i got to record everything that's going to happen to me while I'm in the Army. Mm. That's what I was going to do. I was drafted, and I had two years of service to do. So I, I did keep a journal for much of that time. The, never, I've never asked anybody to read it or anything like that. It's just really a, like a private diary. But that was some writing that I used to do say, four or five times a week, I would put something down that happened. Well, this is certainly uh, an inter- interesting indication of how your first book, The Long Season, came about. Correct. That was essentially a journal which uh, you kept uh, through uh, 1959. Correct. I'm curious, as you kept that journal, were you thinking, as you did it, this is going to be a book someday, or I hope this will be a book someday? Oh, it was going to be a book. So well, you int- introduced me to Evan Thomas who was running Harper and Rowe at that time, and uh, he was a baseball fan. And he said, well, send us some uh, material. Send us what you're writing about. So I did. Hmm. And he said that he gave me an editor who was a really big baseball fan. And the guy was so encouraging that uh, that I was able to, to uh, carry the idea all the way through the season. A lot of people call that the the greatest baseball book ever written. However, <laughs> it was not uh, all that enthusiastically received by all of your teammates and and indeed even other players in baseball seem to be shocked by the idea. Or that, even the uh, commissioner of baseball, Ford Frick, who, <laughs> who disliked the whole idea. Uh, tell us about the reaction of your teammates, the way in which they felt that somehow uh, their inv- their privacy had been... Um, in, invaded. I had two close friends on that ball club: Larry Jackson, a pitcher, and uh, and Ken Boyer, the third baseman. Uh, our wives were friendly. We went on picnics together, uh, and Jackson, who was my roommate on the road, was particularly upset. He said, "Why didn't you tell me what you were doing? I could have given you a hell of a lot more information than you got in that book." <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, uh, Joe Garagiola said it was a uh, disgrace that I uh, should never have done that without letting the Cardinals know I was doing it, because the Cardinals were a particular particular family team. They, I mean, you, you actually, most of the players had grown up in the organization, so they all knew each other, and I, I could understand that. I had come from the Cub organization where there was nothing like that. Uh, there's there no family in the, in the Cub organization when I was there. Uh, so he was upset on that basis. And, and Boyer went along with him also. And for a while, we were uh, not as close friends as we had been before. Hmm. But eventually, uh, especially Jackson came along to, uh, uh, a couple of years later. Actually, he, he, he came to the Cubs from the Cardinals. And I was working in, in television at the time. Uh, we went out to dinner one night, and he said, you know, I was all wrong about uh, about that book. That's a funny book. Hmm. That's what you were trying to do. You're writing about a funny book, right? <laughs> you know, it is, a, it, it is a humorous book. Both of them are. Uh, the thing that's also intriguing to me is that they are honest books, 
and yet at the same time, you certainly write them with at least a little bit of a sense of decorum, that there are probably things that were said and done by your teammates, maybe even once in a while by you, I don't know, but, 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 but this is a book that's certainly rated G, if you know what I mean. I deliberately did that. And and was held uh, to an account by a couple of of, uh, sports writers from New York. One was Len Schechter. I think he wrote for the Post, but maybe the Daily News. One one of the uh, tabloids, anyway. And he he said he was very upset about uh, how I lied. Mm. (laughs) I said, "What do you mean? I I didn't lie." And he said, "Well, you didn't put everything in there that should have gone in there." And I said, "What?" And then he described a certain. Actions of the players, well, their sex lives, uh, how much they drank, you know, what they, they ran out on, on uh, ran around on the road, uh, personal things that I thought, well, hey, I got no business writing about that. I don't know anything about what they do. Uh, so, uh, I, uh, in a sense, I didn't put it in there because I didn't know it. On the other hand, if I did know it, I wouldn't have put it in there. Hmm. And when uh, when Schechter wrote uh, Jim Bouton's book, Ball Four. He put in everything that he thought I should have put in my book, <laughs> the long season, and and I was upset about him because you know, I knew a couple of people who were involved in it. Hmm. We're speaking with Jim Brosnan. Uh, he is the author of two of the best baseball books ever written, The Long Season and Pennant Race. Pennant Race has just been re-released by Ivan R.D. Publishers of, of Chicago. Jim Brosnan, you were a pitcher, and, and more specifically, I think at least for most of your career, you were a relief pitcher. Is that right? Uh, actually, if you, if you took it from uh, the minor leagues through the uh, 11 years that I was involved, uh, it was about even. Oh, okay. I, I started mostly in the minor leagues, and I started quite a few games in the big leagues. I see. Okay. By the time we get to the to pennant race, you are uh, definitely a reliever. I was made a reliever. Right. Fred Hutchinson made me a reliever. He said, you can go six, seven, and then you're terrific, especially the first five, but then you would kind of lose it. I think if we could use you for two, three innings at a time, this is when it wasn't a closer idea. They, you didn't have closers then. You, uh, and guys, had, uh, what do they call them, the, to, uh, to lead up to the closer, or whatever it is. So uh, I was going to ask you why you were equipped to to do this, what it, what it takes. And so it's it sounds like it, it's a, a, a situation where if you have uh, some real talent, but not necessarily uh, the, the, the very best in the way of, of um, stamina to last through many, many innings, then uh, the position of reliever is perfect for you. That's exactly the way he, that's almost exactly the way he put it. Huh. Did, did you agree with him? Uh, he was the manager. <laughs> I, re- <laughs> I respected him a lot. He was—he was. Well, I set it off, and he was like a, a second father to me. He really took care of me. Right. I mean, but do you think he was correctly assessing your skills? I mean, was that was this indeed a a, a, a good vehicle for your skills and talents? <laughs> uh, I think it was about three weeks before that, or a month before that, before he was hired to take over from uh, Mayo Smith, who was the manager that of the Reds when I was sold by the uh, by the Cardinals to the Reds. Uh, I had pitched at a shutout against the Giants and uh, struck out Mays three times. And I mean, I really had a big game. 
but probably the the only really big game I ever had as a starting pitcher. And uh, I reminded him of that, and he uh, reminded me that I hadn't done that well while pitching for him or for Mayo Smith either as a starter. And then he repeated, "I I think you're 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 made to uh, uh, to get the side out for a couple innings, or mm. especially the last inning, and that's what I want you to do." Mm. I have to mention that I happen to be a big opera fan, uh-huh. and and when I read about what you what you did as a relief pitcher during this uh, pennant season, um, I'm reminded of what it's like to be the understudy for an opera singer, for instance. Most mm. big companies have them, and you're basically on standby for when a singer gets sick or once in a while when a singer runs into trouble in the midst of a performance and you might be called to sing the last act of this challenging thing. And it's not an easy position to be in, to not to have to be prepared to go on, but not knowing for certain if indeed you are going to go on. You say at one point in pennant race, usually an experienced relief pitcher knows exactly when he may be called into the game. Rapport with the managers developed over the period of the game. And so I suppose you, you would start to have this sense of when it was that you were likely to be uh, going out to that mound. I could keep little notes, incidentally, in the bullpen that I could put stick into my book. And how's, how's that? <laughs> in the first six innings. And then the last three innings, I'd be ready to pitch. Ah, there you go. So you were busy, busy being an author there right <laughs> off the bat. Sure. I, we had people that were very interesting in that bullpen, and I was cribbing little notes and stories that they were telling and all sorts of things. And uh, that kept my mind off of uh, what I was going to have to do in the last two innings, or the last inning. It's interesting how once in a while you mention how, how whoever the starter was, I mean, sometimes it would be a, kind of a, a slow, steady winding down of what they were able to do, the intensity they could put on the ball and so on. And sometimes it, it would fall apart somewhat abruptly. They'd be having a brilliant game, and then all of a sudden it's like their arm just was shot, and, uh, and and you might be called upon sometimes rather abruptly, even before you felt like you were really adequately warmed up and ready to go. Well, That's also the reality of a reliever. True, uh, but if, if if you have the kind of arm that uh, is necessary for a relief pitcher, it doesn't take you very long to get warm. You uh, and, and, of course, you're, if you're limited to the kind of pitches that you throw, uh, I had a very hard slider that I used to a good deal and a good change, and I could throw pretty hard. Hmm. Uh, so that uh, uh, 20 pitches, that's all I re- really need in the bullpen. I get nine more when I got out on the, on the mound, so that was really enough. That's all I had to have. Hmm. You said at one point, um, by definition, a relief pitcher's job is determined by necessity. Whatever the team needs you to do, you need to be able to do it. Correct. And, uh, I mean, that's many years that I'd been pitching before he put me in that role. So I knew what I could do with my certain, with my talent, with the certain pitches that I threw. Right. And it did, 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 I didn't have to know all the uh, uh, the idiosyncrasies of the hitter, for instance, what kind of pitches he would like to hit or where he hit and that sort of thing, because I would throw to the plate, to the, to the, uh, to the catcher, but I, I would use the plate not uh, thinking about how the, uh, what the batter could do with certain pitches. Hmm. A teammate of yours at one point asked you, what happens to a pitcher when his control goes? 
and you uh, you told this teammate of yours, uh, watch his legs. His rhythm is all shot to hell. You lose your coordination. And you don't know where the ball's going. I thought that was kind of interesting because I think those of us who have, don't really play baseball, and certainly not at this level, I think we just assume that at some point the arm just kind of physically breaks down. But clearly there's... Uh, from what you're describing there, there's something else that also goes on. Oh yes, uh, all, all uh, pitching is done with is done with the legs. What you can do with the, uh, in my case, the right leg, because I was a right-handed pitcher. What kind of balance I could keep, and at the same time uh, intensify the uh, my uh, my feeling about where I was going with that with the pitch. Then you have to have the left leg, then in my case, the left leg. The, the front leg going to a certain spot, and if you you do not push off properly, and if you don't hit that spot properly, uh, your your control is gone. You have lost control of where you want the ball to go. Hmm. You uh, you mentioned the fact that that most uh, baseball players uh, at this major league level. Uh, for every ball player in every ball club, there is one ballpark for which he has few good memories and in which he feels <laughs> uncomfortable. Where were those for you? Well, Crosley Field was uh, was a bandbox. That's where I, I, I played in Cincinnati. Uh, well, for that matter, Wrigley Field with the wind blowing out, which it does about thirty five, forty percent of the time. That is a uh, you know a pitcher's nightmare because the distances to the to the fences are not very, they're not big, they're not long. And a, a fly ball can be a home run, depending upon whether the the, uh, the wind is at 10 miles an hour or 30 miles an hour. Hmm. It's interesting in pennant race how from time to time you'll mention a given player's salary. I remember at one point very specifically you, you, you mentioned a given player who was uh, signed for such and such, I don't know if it was a bonus or their first year uh, uh figure or whatever it was, but the figure was $80,000, and you're talking about that as though it were a lot of money. And of course, for, for a lot of us, $80,000 is still a lot of money. But for, for me, too. Yeah, but for, uh, but for a Major League Baseball player now, uh, I mean, you hardly clear your throat for $80,000. Oh, no, if, if, you're, if you're a real prospect, you start at a million. Right. Um, in, other, in what other ways is baseball a different game today from the baseball season that you captured uh, in in 1961, uh, when the Cincinnati Reds won the pennant. Well, I think speed probably is is more important now than it uh, was then. Uh, at that time, it, uh, baseball was a home run hitting game. You had managers actually uh, talked about three run home. Earl Weaver of the Baltimore Orioles playing in a big ballpark. He still said that the way we play the game, we get two guys on and somebody hits a home run. So that, that's you don't you no longer think that way unless you're the San Francisco Giants. You have Barry Bonds, I suppose. Right. You you do mention how there's a uh, with a lot of your teammates at least uh, there's kind of a cavalier attitude when it comes to physical conditioning, and I get the sense from your book that pitchers were often even excused from some of the conditioning exercises, few that there were back then. Uh, we didn't have much, nothing like that, that they have today. I've, I've been out the ballpark often in, in, uh, before games and see these guys go through 15, 20, 30 minutes of, of uh, all sorts of stuff that <laughs> I wouldn't, <laughs> I would have hesitated to do be, because I thought I hurt myself. <laughs> but what we did then was run. I mean, that, that was. Uh, uh, we used to talk about uh, running is fun. We put a, uh, I put that on a on a on a large uh, 
uh, something my my daughter gave me. She was an artist, and uh, I put it on the uh, uh, on the what what we called the scoreboard. A place where announcements were hmm. when you uh, came into the clubhouse. Right, running is fun. I put that on it in big <laughs> letters, and, and guys were, you know, punching it, sticking needles in it, <laughs> tearing it down. I put another one up; they tear it down. And <laughs> Very. But good. It, it was. I, I was trying to actually kid myself into thinking that uh, running was fun. It uh, wasn't. Right. <laughs> it still isn't fun. Uh, how often do you still get to the ballpark these days? Uh, because Wrigley Field is sold out for the entire season, I understand. <laughs> I don't get there. I don't get there very often. Uh, but they have, you know, almost all their games are televised, and, and I can I can watch on television and see the game from the pitcher's viewpoint, since that that angle is what is usually given to you, mm. and enjoy it better than when I go to the ballpark and can't get a seat behind the plate uh, or in the center field in the bleachers, where I can watch what pitchers are doing. That's what I'm interested in. Right. It, it must be interesting for you to uh, have this book to your credit, which which is now viewed as, you know, in some ways kind of a revolutionary book, as we said at the top of the interview. Uh, nothing like it had ever been written before. I have a feeling as you were writing it, you didn't have any such lofty sense that, uh, you know, I'm doing this unprecedented thing. And we certainly don't get that sense as we read the book. It just has this wonderful, spontaneous sense of fun about it. Well, I thank you for that. This is the sixth publisher of the book. Uh, I never expected anything like that. In fact, Art Myerhoff, the guy that I was supposed to work for when I got out of baseball, when he looked at it, he, he wasn't too impressed. And he said, a book in green, with a green cover won't sell. <laughs> <laughs> well, he would seem to be incorrect about that. <laughs> the book, again, is Pennant Race, one of the great baseball classics by Jim Brosnan, now newly available by uh, Ivan R. D., publisher of Chicago. Jim Brosnan, a real pleasure and honor to speak with you today uh, on our morning show. We thank you so much, and we thank you for writing this great, great book. Thank you, Greg. I would like to add one thing. Yes. Uh, Ivan D. knows more about baseball than any other publisher or editor, or for that matter, sports writer I ever met. Is that right? You mean Mr. D.? I I talked with him for a two-hour lunch the first time I met him. And I'm, I'm sitting there... I'm dazzled by what, what he what he knows about the game. It's, it's just wonderful. Huh. It's, 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 of course, it's wonderful that he has done some, done for my two books what he's done. Exactly, brought and 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 brought some other interesting uh, books to the public that we're going to talk about as well. Jim Brosnan, a real pleasure to speak with you today on the morning show. We thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Greg. Jim Brosnan died in 2014, ten years after this interview was recorded. I'm Gregory Berg.